Welcome to the Revo Podcast. Revo Church is one church in two locations with a vision to spark a revolution of life change through Jesus. We hope to accomplish this through our core values of love big, serve hard, live bold, grow deep, and move forward. For more information about our service times and locations, please visit our website at discoverrevo.com. So occasionally in middle school and high school, I would uh, wake up with what I like to call a tummy ache. Uh, That's what I told my mom at least. And uh, my mom would come in and uh, my mom asked the golden question that I think every young child wants their mom and desires their mom to ask. She would come in as as I was kind of groggy in the bed and she would say, Nathan, do you think you need to miss school today? And uh, in the weakest, most vulnerable voice that I could could muster, I'd say, I, I think so. I think so. so. So my mom would let my brother and I stay home if we were sick, but she would give us rules. You know, like, you're in middle school, don't, don't drive the car anywhere, don't do anything crazy, uh, don't let anybody in the house, don't call anybody. Like, just take it easy, because I want you to go to school tomorrow, and so take it easy and rest. And so my mom would bring us down and, and put us on the couch, and uh, she'd let us watch TV. Now, my brother and I didn't watch a lot of TV uh, growing up. Any, any time we had, we would spend outside. We were into sports and, and playing outdoors and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, she, would, she would let us do that and uh, tell us to take it easy. She would call me constantly just to make sure everything was okay, make sure I wasn't kidnapped or anything. And, and she would bring us lunch, you know. Um, she would call us about 1130 and she would say, you know, I'm, I'm going to come home. Do you want me to bring you something? Do you want some soup or just some chicken broth? And I know, your, I know your tummy's hurting. And I would tell her, well, you know, honestly, if you could go to uh, Wendy's and get a Baconator with a large fry and a sweet tea, that'd be good. And uh, she's like, I thought your stomach was hurting. And I'll, well, it's feeling a little better, Mom. <laughs> uh, so she would bring us lunch, but um, I didn't realize this until I stayed at home from school for the very first time. But did you know that there is a totally different genre of television that happens during the day? Did you know that? Like it's called daytime television. And as a middle schooler, my eyes were open to a lot of things um, on daytime television. Number one is soap operas. Any soap opera fans in here? Okay, that was a test, okay? That's, you don't need to be watching that. Keep your hands down. Um, young and Restless, saw that for the first time in the sixth grade, and uh, so that's fun. Um, Price is Right was another, another uh, good show, and I never knew that existed until I skipped slash was sick from school one day, and uh, the guy, Bob Barker, with the white hair and the spray-on tan, and we're playing Plinko, and, and the big wheel is spinning, and somebody's winning a trip to Hawaii, and it's a brand car and I was like this is amazing where is this why does this only come on at 11 o'clock Monday through Friday when I'm at school um the the last kind of segment or series of shows that I realized was just opening up a whole new world to me were daytime talk shows there's a thing called daytime talk shows if you never heard of them God bless you you need to stay away from that but uh I ran across a really wholesome show called Maury Povich and uh, incredible stuff. How you get on there is amazing. Um, and so I watched this, and there's a segment on the Maury Povich show um, that uh, he's kind of famous for it. And it's a, he does live paternity tests on TV, live. When I'm in school, this stuff's going down, and I'm not watching it. Uh, it's a live test. And so here's kind of how the story plays out. There's a, a lady that has a child that, that says that this particular man is the baby's daddy. 
And uh, normally the daddy, the, the, the man is saying, nope, not me. That's not my kid. It doesn't look like me. It's like I don't even know this girl. And so they agree to come on the show. And the whole show is the lady saying, or, or vice versa, like the lady saying, this is the dad, and, and here's the baby, and he needs to own up to it. And the guys is like, no, it's not super wholesome. It's a family show, right? And uh, so the, the, the climax of the whole show is that both of these people have agreed to do a paternity test. And, and the, the, they're going to figure out who this baby's daddy is. And at the very end, Maury Povich walks out on stage with a big manila envelope with his logo printed on it. And he says, inside this envelope are the results of the DNA test. And we're going to find out who this baby's daddy is. And so in super dramatic fashion, he undoes the envelope. It's like we're at the Oscars or something. He undoes the envelope and pulls it out. And he says one of two things. He'll, he'll say, in, in dramatic fashion, he'll say, you are the father. Or if he's not the father, you say, you are not the father. And one person cries, and the other person celebrates, and the crowd goes crazy, and ratings go up. And my mom would come home and be like, what would you do today? I was like, well, I saw The Price is Right and a live paternity test on the Maury Povich show. Um, so she did not let me skip school anymore after that. <laughs> this morning, I want to do a paternity test. 1 John chapter 3, this series that we've been in, Chapter 3, verse 10, John does his own, he, he channels his inner Mori Povich and does a paternity test. He says, I want to know who's your daddy. I want to know who you belong to. Like, and we're going to do a, a test. And actually there are some things like on that show they would put a, a picture of the kid on screen beside a picture of the dad's face. And the audience would kind of say, yeah, they look alike or they look nothing alike or yeah, obviously this is the daddy. And, and John is going to say, here's what I want to do. Gonna, I want to put a picture of a dad and then I want to put a picture of you. And I want to do a quick paternity test, and we're going to unveil the final DNA test at the end of the service. And like, I just want to know, who is your daddy? Who do you belong to? And so I want to start with verse 10, then we're going to back up and go back to verse 4. But, but here's this Maury Povich moment in chapter 3, verse 10. This is what John says. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John says, maybe you didn't even know this, but you have a spiritual father, right? And John says, we're going to do a test this morning. He's writing to this audience, same test that we're going to do today. And John does something interesting. He breaks everyone in the room into two teams. He said, either you are a son or a daughter of God, or you are a son or a daughter of the devil. We talked about Satan last week, so if you want to kind of catch up on that, that idea and that person and what he's all about, you can catch the podcast from last week. Um, but, but did you know that, that you have a spiritual father? Like Some of you may not even realize that, but now it's all clicking because you're like, my kids. Sometimes they act like they are a spawn of the devil. And so this is all making sense now. It's putting it together. But John says one of these is, is going to be your father. You're either light or you're dark. You're truth or you're lies. You're God, a child of his, or a child of the devil. I love this about John. It's, it's black and white with him. There's, there's no in-between. There's no like, well, maybe there's another option. You're not like 1.5 
There's not a bunch of different choices that we can answer that question for. John just says this. There's two options, and this morning, we're going to find out who's your daddy. We're going to find out who you belong to. And it's actually pretty easy. It's just two pretty straightforward things. John breaks it down. He says, people that are born of God, people that are children of God, people that have God as their father, there will be two things that you can observe in your life. Two results that happen when your life is changed by Jesus. Now, these things don't change your life, right? It's not salvation by works. But when your life is changed by Jesus, then people on the outside will be able to see these two things in your life. And John says in verse 10, he says, Number one, people that are children of God will make a practice of righteousness. Make a practice of righteousness. And number two, he says, children of God, if God is your dad, then you will be known for your love. You'll be known for your love. Now, unfortunately, many times in Christian circles or in churches, you will find people that claim to be followers of Jesus that are good at one of those. It's, it's very rare that we find somebody that's good at both of those. Some people are really good at practicing righteousness. They know all the right answers. They go to church every Sunday. They give every Sunday. They go to a small group every week. They serve people inside the church every week. But for them, Jesus is a thought. He's an idea in their head. He's a theory that they know how to say the right answers to. But it's interesting, some of those people that claim to be church people, that claim to follow Jesus, can for real be some of the meanest people you ever meet. You ever met a mean church person? Yeah, I have, yes. They love the righteous. The righteous, they know right versus wrong. They know the Bible. They've studied. They've broken down the theology, but they don't love. And then on the opposite end, you, you have people that kind of sway on the opposite end. They, there are people that love their open arm. They're like, hey, we got to love everyone and accept everyone. And, and wherever you are and whatever you do is cool with me. And just like, I'm, we're here, we're Christians, we got our arms open. And we're real big on the love, but we're lax on the righteousness. We love people so much and we're so embracing of people that we lose sight that even though we love people, there is still a right and a wrong. There is still a dark and a light. There is still a truth and a lie. And for some reason, people tend to sway on one of those two things. Either we're uber-righteous and we're really mean to people, or we love everybody, but we've allowed the truth of God's Word to kind of sift through our fingertips. And John says this, you're followers of Jesus, if God is your dad, then you're not good at one of those, you're good at both. Those are the, the DNA tests, those are the results that will come out. And Jesus was one that mastered this. Jesus loved the sinner but was public enemy number one to sin. Like he loved everyone and had compassion for everyone around him, but everyone knew where Jesus stood. Everyone knew Jesus stood for the truth. He knew there was a right and a wrong. He knew there was a light and a dark. He knew that there was a, a liar and an enemy and that there was a savior and a true God. But somehow Jesus mastered it. Like everybody wanted to be Jesus' friend. Except the religious people, the mean people that didn't love others. And so Jesus modeled this, Jesus mastered it, but sometimes in, in our culture, that idea is lost. Many people believe that those two things coexisting are impossible. Lean, lean in for just a second. 
did you know that you could actually love someone that you disagree with? That's foreign for some people. Some people believe that if you don't agree with 100% of what I say and do, 100% of the time, then you don't love me. In fact, you hate me, and you don't care about me or my life, and you don't want me to be happy, and we can never be friends. Since when did that start? Well, what it started is when righteous people stopped loving people. And when loving people stopped acknowledging that there was a truth and a holiness and a right and a wrong or a dark and a light. And Jesus said those two things can coexist. Look at my life. And John says if we're going to be of the Father, if that's your dad this morning, then that's who you are. You are a practicer of righteousness and you are known for loving people. So John's going to break those two things down. Let's go back to verse 4 of chapter 3. He says, let me, let me explain to you what a practicer of righteousness is. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now we got to be careful here because when you read verse 4, if I was to do a quick survey, quick hand raise, raise your hand if you have sinned in the last 24 hours. Here's what would happen. Relatively 80% of us would raise our hand. The other 20% would be liars, which makes you a sinner as well. And so now that we're 100% on the same page and that we've all sinned together in the last 24 hours, this verse begs the question, Paul or John, are you saying that if you sin, then God is not your dad? Are you saying that the paternity test came back and are you saying that anyone who sins is a child of the devil and not a child of God? There's an interesting phrase that John uses here. Language is super important and what John says in this verse brings us light into what he's trying to say. He says anyone that makes a practice of lawlessness. Anyone that makes a practice. Not anyone that sins occasionally or one time, because if that was the case, then all of us would be disqualified and God wouldn't want to have anything to do with any of us. But he says there's a difference between someone that sins and someone that is practicing lawlessness and practicing sin. See, John says here, when you talk about the word practice, we're talking about habit. We're talking about a routine. We're talking about predictability. We're talking about every time you find yourself with that person or in that situation, like it's, it's constant. It's, people can predict it. It's habitual in your life. That's what he means by are you practicing sin? I'm not talking about God has called us to be perfect or God has called us never to sin. That's impossible. That's why we needed Jesus in the first place. We're all sinners. But John says there is a difference between someone that practices sin and someone that sins in their life? Is it habitual? Do you practice it? Um, my daughter has spelling words every week. She has a spelling test at the end of the week, and so my wife and I work with her every week, and, and we have like different exercises that we do with her all, all during the week to help her learn it, and she'll ask me, she'll, she'll say, Dad, why are you making me write this word five times? Like, Dad, why, why are you making me use it in a sentence? Dad, why do I have to call it out and spell it like out loud and write it down. And so I used to say this phrase to her, I'll say, because Leah, practice makes perfect. You ever heard that phrase before? Maybe it's from your coach or if you played a musical instrument or, or trying to learn for a test. Actually, that, that phrase is not correct. Practice doesn't make perfect because if you practice it wrong, then it will not lead to perfection. <laughs> practice can actually make imperfect. 
And so we kind of changed it around in our house. I'll tell Leah, practice makes permanent. The more you practice it, the more permanent it will be. If you practice it correctly all during the week, then in theory, when you take the test, you will know it. But if you practice it incorrectly all week, then there's a 100% chance that you're going to spell it incorrectly on the test. And so John says this, what are you practicing? Not have you ever sinned before, but do you practice sinfulness, lawlessness, or are you one that practices righteousness? Because whatever you're practicing right now will eventually become permanent in your life. You want to know who your daddy is. You need to look at what you're practicing. Are you a practicer of righteousness? Verse 5. You know that he, Jesus, appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Here's what John says. I love that he just continues to clarify. He says, I don't want anybody to be confused. I don't want you to get like wrong theology that you're trying to earn your way to God or that as long as you don't sin, then God loves you and you can be on his team. John here talks about like once your life is changed by Jesus, then you are not, check this out, you are not sinless, but you sin less. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It just means that before you met Jesus, your life was pursuing a totally different thing. But now that you've met Jesus, you ought to be able to look back and realize you're not sinless, but you sin less now that Jesus has changed your life. You want to know who your daddy is. Who are you practicing? What are you practicing? Is it sinfulness and lawlessness? Are you practicing righteousness? Look back on your life before you knew Jesus. And now look at your life now. Are you sinning less? I'm not asking you, are you perfect? I'm not saying you better be sinless in order to please God. But there ought to be something that we look back on our life and be like, you know what? This was my life pre-Jesus. Jesus changed my life and as a result of that grace, salvation by grace, as a result of that, I've noticed something different in my life. God has begun to change my heart and my mind. He's begun to change my relationships, the way I respond to people. My attitude and my actions, the words that come out of my mouth, God has begun to change all of that. And hopefully you look back and say, man, I know I'm not sinless, but I do sin less now that I've met Jesus and, and know who Jesus. It's just part of the life change that happens in our lives. Verse 7, little children. That's not a condescending, like he's not looking at them like, you dumb kids, like, listen to me. This is a father, he's a coach, he's like, I'm your spiritual dad, I'm your mentor. Like, I love you guys. Listen, little children, come on, little flock, come on in here and listen to me. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Let me keep clarifying it, John says. Just want to make sure nobody got lost. Just want to make sure nobody thinks this is works-based salvation. Once you meet Jesus, your life begins to change. If you are practicing righteousness, your life begins to change. And it's continual. If your life is about being of the devil, then your life is going to look like that. But if you're a child of God, then your life is going to look like that. And I love verse 8. We're coming up on December. Like the Christmas season is, is coming up. I hope you're getting excited about that. And, and in verse 8, we actually read like the true meaning of Christmas. 
If somebody comes up to you and says, like, what is Christmas all about? You know, you know what they say? Some people say, well, it's baby Jesus, born in a manger, and silent night, holy night. And even people that don't love Jesus, they're like, well, Christmas is about family and friends and getting together. I'm going to put something, like, let's switch it up this year. If anybody asks you this year, what is Christmas all about? I just want you to, like, memorize verse 8 in chapter 3. says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Like, just mix it up a little bit, man. <laughs> it doesn't work really at Walmart. You know, you don't go in and see a display of a tree on fire and a little statue of Satan and Jesus dropping a bomb on him. And he's like, the reason for the season is to destroy the works of the devil. It's not as catchy as Santa Claus and trees and presents and stuff, but it's true. Like, you can look at the Bible. In fact, I'm going to make an executive decision. My wife's not here, but I'm the man of the house. So this year, our Christmas card is going to have a picture. You guys send out pictures of your kids on Christmas? Our picture is going to be my two little girls in their red smock dresses posing in front of the tree, and at the very top it's going to read, Silent night, holy night in the little town of Bethlehem, baby Jesus was born. And at the bottom in big letters, it's going to be to destroy the works of the devil. Merry Christmas, the Kleins. Like, let's switch it up, man. This is what Jesus, John says, the reason Jesus came, Christmas, the little baby in the manger, was because he showed up to destroy sin, to destroy the works of the devil. Like, what was Jesus' first words? He probably looked up at Mary and says, where's the devil and where are his works? Because I've come to destroy them. Maybe. Lays it out right there. Are you practicing righteousness? Or are you practicing lawlessness? Because Jesus showed up to destroy lawlessness, to do away with lawlessness. It's the whole reason for the season. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. This is the second time in these verses where John uses the phrase, keep on sinning. If you are born of God, here's the DNA test, you cannot keep on sinning. You cannot Keep on sinning, a person that has done that. So again, we're like, what does that mean? So if you look at what that means in the text, here's the idea, best way I can describe it. John here is describing a gag reflex towards sin. Now, now think about this, like what, what makes you gag? Maybe it's a food, it's the smell of a food. Um, for me, blood, like if, I, if, if, if somebody gets cut or something, you, you better hope somebody else helps you because I'm gone. Like I'm going to... I'm going to pass out, my face, like all the blood goes out of my face, my knees, I can't stand. Like if I get a scratch, one of, one of my family members has to help me or I'll pass out trying to put the Band-Aid on. Like I just can't even look at it. Maybe there's a food that a family member of yours eats and you're like, gross, don't bring that in the house. Every time I smell it, every time I look at it, it's just disgusting. It makes me want to gag. It's like I just, like I have this just unnatural Un, uncontrollable reflex towards seeing that. Um, maybe it's something that someone says or an experience that you've had that you have this, this uncontrollable, like you just look at it or you think about it and you're like, oh, 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 uh-uh, don't, I can't do that. I can't do that. Don't, <laughs> don't get it around me. That's the language that John says if you are a son or a daughter that practices righteousness than just being around sin. Eventually, if you practice righteousness a long time, 
being around sin, you'll just be like, oh, mm -mm, mm -mm. I can't look. I don't want to smell that. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to be around it. Don't bring it in here. I'm allergic to it. It makes me gag. He, he lays out there. You cannot, if your life has been changed by Jesus, you cannot keep on sinning. Eventually, you, you develop this, this displeasure with things that don't glorify God. But if you're a man or a woman that you continue to love the act of sinning, you love to be in it and around it and smell it and embrace it and be all about it, then chances are you're not a son or daughter of God. John says you, you cannot keep on sinning and claim that God is your dad. It's just not how it works. God changes your heart. God changes your mind. He changes your desires in the way that you respond. Verse 10, one more time. But this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Here's the, here's the DNA test. Here's the, here's the big reveal. Whoever does not practice righteousness is, is not of God. And the second one is this. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. So he kind of transitions here. He says, now, now that you know what it means to practice righteousness, now let's talk about what it means to love your brother. We see this all throughout Scripture. God is love. How do you know God gave His Son Jesus? What has God called us to do? Love God and love people. Not just people that are like us and that are lovable, but people on the outside, people that are enemies of ours. Jesus even calls us to love your enemies. In the book of James, James says, Love those that are currently persecuting you. Love one another. Are you known for your love? And I'm really appreciative of John in this text because he doesn't just say, Love one another and just leave it as some flowery word. Like, just, just love. What does that mean? Well, you know, just love, like a, like a Valentine's Day card or, or like that feeling you get in your heart when you're around that person that you, that you love so much and like your knees are weak and you're, you're, you're falling all over yourself and you have butterflies. You know, just love, just love like that. I'm so glad that it's not just some weird abstract emotion that John just says, well, just love everybody and whatever you think that means, go for it. John actually applies it. He gives us something really practical in verse 16. He says, by this we know love. You don't know what love is? You don't know how you know when you see it? You don't know what it's like to practice love? He says that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. See, Jesus did not just write you a love note. God did not just simply write this book as a love letter to you and say, well, I hope they get it. God didn't just send you a text with a, with a little kissy face and a little red heart and says, I love you. No, God proved it. John says, you want to know if you love people? You want to know if you're a person of love? Then love leads to action. You're not just going to tell people you love them. You're not just going to wave if people say, God bless you, <laughs> love you. You're going to do something. It's associated with action. Are you a man or a woman of action? Is your love connected to actions? That's how you're going to know if your dad is God or not. You don't just talk about love. It's not just an idea. It's not a scripture verse that you cite. You love people. It's associated with action. Last two verses, verse 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods... And sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, 
but in deed and in truth. He says, you want to really know if you love someone? John says, I'll give you another step. For those that have the resources of the world, for those that have been given time, for those that have been given finances, for those that have been given influence, for those that have been given authority, for those of you that have been given a family or a friendship or a neighbor that you've cultivated a relationship with, for those of you that are married or, or have parents or whatever this dynamic is, for those of you that were given a job and have a boss and all of the goods, all of the things that we have in this world, John says, if you are not willing to use those things to honor God and help other people follow Him, then you do not have the love of God in you. How can you have the love of God in you but not give it to others? John says it's impossible. It's an imposter. The people that are really born of God, that are children of God, they take the the world's goods that they have and they use them to love. They use them to serve your time your resources, your energy, your efforts, your speech? Are you using that to build people up and point people to Jesus? Are you just keeping it for yourself? Are you using it to tear down and divide? Are you using it to be self-righteous but not love? Are you using it to love but but to, to, to disavow the truth? And who cares what the Bible says as long as we're nice to each other? John says both of those two things go hand in hand. And he, he, puts the, he, he puts the example on the low shelf. I appreciate this about John. Because when, when he talked in verse 16 about Jesus giving his life for you and I, I don't know about you, but I'm glad verse 17 doesn't say, so now I want you to give your life for someone else. But sometimes that's the way we think of it. When we think of sacrifice and we think of giving and when we think of serving others, we tend to go to the extreme. We're like, you know what? Like if, if my neighbor's house was on fire and I heard them screaming and they couldn't get out, I think I'd go in. I would run in and I would risk my own life to save them. Or if a, a baby fell in the water and didn't know how to swim, like I would jump in. I would, I would risk my life to jump in and try to save another person's life. And we run through these scenarios where we're like, well, would we do that? Would we sacrifice? Would we give it all? And John's like, I'm not even asking you to do that. Like one hour a week, would you give that? I'm not asking for all 128 hours, just one. I'm not saying you have to sell your house and move to the other side of the world and give away all of your money. Like, but can you just be generous towards the one person? Man, can you just give faithfully, not 100%, but just give some of your resources that God has? I'm not asking you to give it all. Like John puts it on the bottom shelf. He says, man, would you just, would you just be generous with the resources that you have, with the time that you have? Would you leverage the relationships and the authority that you have and the influence so that someone else can meet Jesus, so that you can make an impact, so that we can change this world together? John says, here, here, here's the deal. We're going to put a picture of the devil on one side of the screen, we're going to put a picture of God on the other side of the screen. And we're going to put a picture of you in the middle. And we're going to ask, who's your daddy? Because if you're like God, then that means you're loving and you're kind and you're compassionate and you're generous. And you're full of light and you're full of truth. But 
if, if this is your dad over here, then you only care about yourself and you live your life close-fisted and you don't care about anybody else and just whatever's good for me and if you can't make it, if you're hurting, if you're struggling over here, then that's fine as long as I'm doing good. Who's your daddy? Who do you belong to? It's, it's light or dark. It's truth or lies. John breaks it down into one of two categories. Either you're, either you're a child of God or you're not. Who's your daddy? Who are the people in your life that are hurting, that are lost, that are in need of love? Who are the people, wherever you live, work, play, eat, study, and shop, in your spheres of influence that need to know holiness and righteousness, but they need to know truth in love? Because maybe they've never experienced that before. Maybe they've experienced love, but no one's told them about the truth of the gospel. Maybe they've been beat over the head with the Bible and who Jesus is, but no one that loves Jesus actually loved them before. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's you. Let's pull out the envelope. If somebody were to look at your life, John says they'd be able to tell real quick, who's your dad? Who do you follow? Who have you sold your life out to? What do the paternity tests reveal for you today? Are you a practicer of righteousness and a lover of people? Because that's what sons and daughters of God do.